Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'd like a few of you to pray while I make my way to a safe place come over. And we will have our study together. I'd like someone to please read it slowly for us so we can hear the Word of God. We've been going back to chapter 6 a few times, and then we saw a particular verse regarding the nature of Jesus Christ, his blameless character. And uh, we want to read that chapter through. So someone please read Hebrews chapter 7 for us. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. It means a priest remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people, according to the law, that is, from their brethren though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he, whose genealogy is not derived from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed to the better. I'm not sure how far I'm supposed to go. I forgot. If you're, if you're able to, Phil, uh, so you can read the chapter. If you can. Okay. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. And even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. It is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. 
for he testifies. You are priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. The word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son, who has been perfected forever. Praise the Lord. This reading has so much detail about the priesthood. If one were to give the New Testament, as we mentioned in the Life Train School last evening, and say, read about Jesus and the better covenant. Aside from the brief summary, how would they ever know the context in which to understand how much better this covenant is without knowing the Old Testament prescription that God gave, regulations and ordinances, laws, rituals, all to reveal the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the great gulf between the two, that there was a temporal provision made in order to cover the sins. When we read this chapter and we read the book of Hebrews, certain things may be grasped immediately. Other things may be enigmatic, may be a little difficult to understand, or even, even as we read the explanation here, may be difficult to apply. We may think, you know, this reminds me of the genealogies. Matthew, and in the Old Testament, the census and the numbers and all these things, elaborate records of things that we may think have nothing really to do with me, even though I'd like to believe that it has something to do with me, that I need to read this because it's God's Word, but how does it apply to me? The Bible says that the Scripture will interpret the Scripture or one Scripture can illuminate another Scripture. 
Jesus Christ is shown to be superior to the angels, the prophets, to Moses, to the priesthood system. And the new law of love and life in Christ Jesus has replaced the law that produced death. In this very chapter, he speaks of Melchizedek to show the power of an endless life that Jesus has. He's a priest that, unlike the priesthood set up by God to have Moses institute and ordain Aaron and his sons as the priests in the line of high priests. Like the Supreme Court justices, they may be there for a while, but eventually they die. But the Son of God has an endless life, this power. He's able to intercede forever now, does he go and present his blood over and over again for eternity? It's done. But he's in the position of representing us to the Father forever. Hallelujah. And yet we are drawn to God to become his children. And we become one with the Father ourselves. He prayed in the high priestly prayer this faithful high priest in John 17. Father, that they may be one as we are one. They may be one with us. Let's turn to the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, his intercession, though, in a sense, officially embarked upon that role, that is, after he died and paid with his blood the atonement for our souls to set us free and then resurrected from the dead and passed through the heavens. They saw him go up through the clouds from the mount. In full view of the people of God, He ascended into heaven and then disappeared into the clouds. The angels said, why are you gazing up there? He's going to come back. Same way. Well, the Lord gave us an insight into his intercession in John 17. Jesus spoke these words, you see, in the previous chapter. He's talking about the overcoming life. He's talking about the end of the world, the preparation that's needed to be found faithful. He's talking about the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit, after these things, this eternal high priest spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And he continues... And he says, I have revealed your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. The people. Verse 6. They've kept your word. He says, I'm not interceding for the world. At this point he says, my prayer is for those whom you've given me. For they are yours. And all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Very intimate 
revelation here. Then he speaks about how he has kept the people by his power, except the son of perdition, the son of hell, destruction, who Judas, he had it made, but he scorned, he scoffed, he belittled, he mocked, he sowed into evil, while well, sitting, dining with the Son of God, hearing his word, seeing the miracles, he became a devil. Have not I chosen you? He said, yet one of you is a devil, Jesus said. Was he born a devil? No. But he chose the devil's path, and so the devil killed him. But other than that, he's kept everyone. And what we want to look at here in this chapter is this oneness God wants us to have. So we are positioned here on earth, going through the pilgrimage, carefully walking through this world of wilderness and snares, destructive snares. A devil who's going about seeking whom he may devour like a roaring lion, hungry, vicious, murderous. We walk carefully, protected by the living God. And Jesus is in heaven right now. When we get to heaven, the consummation, we become eternally united with him in a manner that is the ultimate perfection, which has begun when we became born again, and we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not pray for these alone, but for all those, also for those who will believe in me through their words. Still not the world. He's praying for who? The elect. The elect is selected among those who elect to obey God. The elect is selected as a group of people who have elected themselves to respond to the grace of God with faith and obedience. That's who Jesus is praying for. Notice, I do not pray for these alone, but for those, also for those who what? Will believe. It's a volitional thing. They will believe. The gift of grace and the faith is given as a gift, but they put it to use. They mix it with faith and it becomes profitable forever for them. They believe in me through their word. Whose word? The disciples' word. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Why did we bring this up now? Is to illustrate that seeming paradox appears to be a little opposite, but it's not. What is it? That I am here in the courtroom of heaven and I have an advocate over there by the judge talking to the judge on my behalf. And yet this scripture says also, I'm one with the judge and one with the advocate. How deep and marvelous this is. With the position that I am in God, made one with the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit, He still is my eternal intercessor. Hallelujah. David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, Lord. How powerful when we see the scriptures in light of other scriptures. We're going to look briefly at Romans and Galatians because reading about the law, we may come away with a faulty understanding that somehow the law that God gave, when he gave it, was faulty. And that's not the case. We need to explain what that word faulty means in the Bible when it talks about the law. Because in Romans it says the law is good and holy. But how can it say that this first covenant and the law was 
weak. The covenant was unprofitable. We'll see in a moment why. As we look at Hebrews, Galatians, and Romans. In that explanation of Melchizedek is to show that the Son of God is eternal, is not from the earthly tribe selected after Abraham met Melchizedek. But the tribes were in who? Abraham's loins, in his body. They're yet to be born, but they were there. And they paid tithes too. Among them, who? Even Levi. Even the priests. To show this Melchizedek is superior to the whole priesthood system that was yet to be set up by God. God, knowing full well, showed that this Melchizedek, coming out of the bread, the wine, the juice, was greater than Father Abraham. He received the tithes from Abraham and he blessed him who had the promises. The more we read this word and ask God to illuminate it to us, the more we'll see the exact connection that the Holy Spirit wants to make with reference to Jesus Christ. It won't be a commentary. It won't be some one-to-one correspondence here and some vague things here. And I still don't see how this really applies to me. It's more of a background. No, when we look at Scripture with Scripture, we draw near to God with a pure motive, Abba, I want to know you more. I want to know you better. Oh Lord, I want to know your word. It drops like dew from heaven. After saying this, he talks about the need for a brand new priesthood. And the priesthood that is new, along with the new covenant, where was that introduced forthrightly in that last supper scene the Lord Jesus took the bread and the cup the juice the fruit of the vine and said take eat as he broke the bread and gave this is my body which is broken for you And he distributed the cup and he said, take and drink. This is the blood of this new covenant. A new covenant. Jeremiah spoke about it. Ezekiel spoke about it. Even while they were under the old covenant, the prophets were given tremendous revelation that there's coming a covenant that's going to Replace all that we knew. Because even the prophets understood at best the old covenant which was correctly situationally given by God for the temporal or temporary remedy. It was good. The law is good and holy. But the faultless, when you hear the word faulty, the devil can come and people who are not well-versed in the scriptures or deliberately used by the devil to malign God's character, if they attempt to, can begin to scratch their heads and hope to make others scratch their heads, even innocent Christians. Well, if the law was not able to save, and the old covenant was faulty, why on earth or in heaven's name was it ever given? Someone please turn, well, we can all turn to Galatians chapter 3. Because we heard, as Phil read, that that old covenant was uh, faulty. that the priesthood had weaknesses that we can comprehend readily they die and they have to pay for their own sins 
So how will they ever be able to perfectly make intercession for our sins? They can't. But the new priest, the high priest, Jesus Christ, is absolutely sinless and has an endless life. You can't get anything better than that. Hallelujah. The perfect high priest. We can go to him who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and intercede for us perfectly. Hallelujah. The Bible says the Holy Spirit makes groans within us during our prayer to God that is faithful and spirit-led. Utterances that we cannot comprehend. There's a communication between the Trinity that is perfect, always has been perfect, always will be. And we get to be part of it as the Holy Spirit prays in and through us to God. We have an advocate and we have a helper, comforter. What a perfect God we serve. Perfect provision. He did it all and gave it all and made everything perfectly available for our perfection. No question, no doubt. Oh, what supreme confidence we have in Christ, in the word of his promises, in his provision of his own son to be our high priest and the Holy Spirit to be our helper and comforter. We may look at the priesthood and understand just as the angels and the prophets, why Jesus is superior, but this law, this covenant, why is it called weak and faulty? It came from God. We're going to explain that in a moment. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Someone please read verse 24 and 25. Hallelujah. And I version, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The law is given as a tutor until Christ came. It served the purpose. And the purpose was, God knowing full well, it's a temporary provision and it cannot perfect the people. God is after perfecting us and it can only happen through the blood of the sinless Lamb of God, the faithful High Priest, Jesus Christ. God has given us Jesus to fulfill everything. He's given us the law, and actually I was alluding to chapter 8, which we didn't read yet together. But look at chapter 8 in verse 7. Someone please read that, verses 7 through, as he quotes the prophets, to 11. Hebrews 8, chapter 8, verses 7 to 11. Someone please read that. Chapter 8, NLT version, Hebrews verses 7 through 11. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. 
I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not heed to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. Praise God. Praise the Lord. So the law is good, but God says, those people, they didn't keep my covenant. They didn't continue in it. Even though it could not perfect them the way the new covenant through the blood of Jesus was going to, and will be able to perfect them, still, the purpose was for them to keep the regulations, keep the commandments, draw near to God in anticipation of the promise being fulfilled, which is of faith. And people who kept the law by faith, they were doing great. They're doing well. People like Moses... Joshua, Caleb, many others who kept the ordinances of God like Zacharias and Elizabeth but they also had faith. They believed there's a Messiah coming. The Lord said unto my Lord sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he has declared, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. As we read through the scriptures with an eager heart to get to know God more intimately, God will reveal more and more. Everything will make sense. Not just sense theoretically or to the satisfaction of our logical minds, but practically there will be an impartation of power of some substance, spiritual nourishment, and it'll make me perfect and mature in Christ, to live like Jesus. That's the whole, that's the whole reason and the import of the Word of God. So, we saw in Galatians that the law was given as a tutor to prepare us to receive the better thing that God was providing in Christ. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. There are people under the law who believed. And that's why they were in the right place with God. Because they knew the law cannot save me. And the prophets wrote I've given you the blood upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. Leviticus 17.11 And that's the hope with which they presented those animal sacrifices until Jesus came to make the ultimate sacrifice to not cover sin for a season but to take it away from us permanently. Hallelujah. That's the only way someone can say I'm holy and I'm walking by faith in this world above the pollution and the sin. But before faith came, Galatians 3.23, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. There were not a people who were haphazardly trying to make a law for themselves. Uh, nomadic people who came out from the wilderness, very soon they would have adopted the laws of the heathen nations around them. God had his own law for them, to school them to be very different, to be an example to the world of how to be separate from sin and sinners, to draw near unto God. That law that God gave we think immediately about the Ten Commandments. 
kept them under guard, showed them God's ways. God was revealing himself through the law. And he would reveal himself perfectly to the one who would fulfill the law, his own son. And when we look to the cross, away from ourselves and our own abilities, by faith that he died for me, to do what I could never do through the law. Therefore the law was our tutor, verse 24, Galatians 3.24, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We think about the law. Is it good or bad? In Hebrews 8 it says, if it didn't have fault then there would be no annulling of the law. There would be no changing of the covenant, no changing of the priesthood. As I said, we can perhaps readily comprehend why the priesthood needs to be changed. Because the people are sinful, and they need atonement themselves, and they die. They can't forever intercede for us. That's the generations of the priesthood. It shows that it's not something permanent. It's something perpetuated, for a time to act as a foreshadow of the perfect priest, high priest, and the perfect covenant. Let's turn to Romans chapter 7, that God can amplify more for us concerning this law, lest anyone should say that God gave something crooked. He knew it was faulty, and he gave something faulty, but we need to understand that words can mean very different things if we don't understand the context. And we're going to sum that up in a few moments. But Romans chapter 7. Let's begin with verse 1. If someone is able to, please read that chapter for us. Let's listen carefully. As we've seen, Hebrews chapter 7, Galatians 3, all regarding the law. Hebrews chapter 8, some verses. Now Romans chapter 7. Someone please read this first. Romans chapter 7, New King James Version. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the wholeness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin taken opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. 
I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy is and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If, then, I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For two will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward men. But I see another law in my members, wearing against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members, O wrecked man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I thank God to Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Praise God. Praise God. Very long discourse here, a chapter here explaining a person who's struggling under the law. He's talking to people who knew the law, but who obviously did not walk by faith. Because Moses, Joshua, Caleb, Daniel, all the way down to Elizabeth and Zacharias, John the Baptist, many, many people. The prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Habakkuk, all of them. Were they struggling? When people read Romans 7 in isolation, the devil can come and begin to teach them with his confusing heresies. To do what? Turn back and look at God and say, you gave me a faulty law, you gave me a faulty covenant, you gave me a faulty body. Look, Father, in Romans 7 it says, I am a mess. I have no power because, look, it's in your own word, Father, that I don't do the things I want to do and I keep doing the things I'm not supposed to do. I don't do what I'm supposed to do and I do what I'm not supposed to do. The answer to that is very simple. A person only need read Romans 5, 6 and Romans 8. Romans 7 is sandwiched between those chapters that speak about an overcoming, dominating life through faith in Christ Jesus. 
There's no struggle mentioned there at all. Then why is Romans 7 there? To show the people who are trying to make it with the old thing that's become obsolete. It served its purpose and that's why it's called faulty. Not because it was faulty when God gave it. In the sense that it was something that could not help them. It could help them. How? To perfect them? Not like Jesus can, but to serve as a tutor to prepare them for Christ. How? As they kept the ordinances, the regulations of God, they looked by faith to the one who's going to pay for their sins. God gives a revelation. Not everything is recorded. Because the Bible says in the book of Psalms, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. God gives revelation to anyone. He is impartial. Anyone who meets a certain condition who fear Him. And that fear of God is evidenced when people keep His commandments. The law, we see very clearly in Romans, is good and holy. Then why does it say in Hebrews that law was weak? That law couldn't help me? It depends on who we're speaking of. Is it a person who tried to be perfected by the law? Apart from faith in God, absolute dependence upon God's promise, that person will struggle. That person will not have victory. It's faith that is the victory that overcomes the world. And as we continue with God and we look at these scriptures with scriptures, the Holy Spirit will illuminate our understanding more and more so that we don't fall into the trap laid everywhere across the world, it seems today, in modern evangelicalism and Christian institutions and seminaries and churches. Rank heresy to say the law is useless. No, it's not useless. It's good and holy. How dare we say that the law that God gave is useless? Does it give useless things? It came from God. But when it speaks about its weakness, the inability of the law to perfect the people, we see in context is very clear that it served a purpose to bring us along, to tutor us along, so we can know what? Through the law, I understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. I really get a sense now that there is a moral law that God has in the universe. <clears throat> and anyone who violates it will suffer the consequences. But those who follow God will be safe. Did all the Israelites understand the full implications of every ceremonial aspect of the law? They could have understood readily the moral aspects and the civil aspects but perhaps not the ceremonial and, though, and so it's explained here in detail in the book of Hebrews just like the book of Romans and James the book of Ephesians and James Speaking of grace, it's only by grace, not of works. The Holy Spirit through James says, you can't say you have no works. You have to have works. In the book of Romans, it seems to say, Abraham was justified not by his works, but by faith. In the book of James, it says he was justified by his works. Not just by a profession of faith. But which one is it? Just as God is one, his word is one. There's no contradiction. It takes a person who is walking in the light to get the revelation, to understand more, crystal clear in their own spirits. Beginning with, as we always emphasize, the eternal conviction that God is good. He's perfect. He cannot make a mistake. He cannot. He cannot. He's absolutely holy. 
And everything he does is perfect. But it's sin that corrupts things. Very key verse here in chapter 7. It says, actually chapter 8, let's go to chapter 8. It says, for that first covenant, verse 7, Hebrews 8, 7, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Follow this now carefully. Because finding fault with them, them, sounds like plural, covenant is singular. Later on it says, I disregarded them. Who? The people who did not continue in my covenant. That covenant and the law of God, every ordinance given through Moses was perfectly suited for those people for that time. God does not make mistakes. And the people who kept the law by faith, just like they put the Passover lamb's blood on the doorposts. They had no problem. No issues. Can anyone look at Joshua and Caleb? Just examine their lives and see that they struggled beating their fists against the wall every night after they did their duties. Why am I doing the things I don't want to do? Oh Moses, do you have an answer? And Moses is over there in his corner saying, but I keep doing the things I'm not supposed to do. Do you see Joshua struggling over there? What a wretched soul I am. I can't wait till I get delivered. No. They were people whose faith was indomitable. They could not be defeated. That's why Caleb defeated the giants. That's why Joshua took them into the promised land. That's why Moses left Egypt. All the sinful luxuries to go and suffer with the people of God. He had faith. The man walked by faith and except for. The sin that would keep him out from the promised land. Under provocation he did that. It was a grievous thing to God, but to follow his life on the whole, he wasn't struggling. You don't see Moses saying, people, God gave me the Ten Commandments, and I'm suffering as I'm bringing it down to you. Why? I can't help it. I can't help it. I'm, there's something in me that makes me take the name of my God in vain. And I'm trembling as I'm bringing the tablets down. No. No. God would not be his friend if he was such a person. May the Lord help us to cut through the lies, some subtle and some very overt, blatant blasphemies from the devil, to twist the scriptures. As the Bible says through the Apostle Peter, speaking to the people of God regarding some things which our beloved brother Paul has written, oh, people who are wicked, they're twisted, twist the scriptures. Ignorant and arrogant. We need to come humbly to the Lord and have this established forever. God is good. Devil, get out in Jesus' name. You can't come here and twist the scriptures to me. I'm not going to listen to any man, any woman, look at any commentary, any preaching video, any church, any establishment, any seminary. Whoever, directly or indirectly, even remotely hints through clever speech and written treatises. Somehow God had a lapse in judgment. No, that's Satan, the liar. Somehow the law of God wasn't good. He gave something crooked. And uh, after the fact, he realized it wasn't good. So he brought in something better. Is that how it went? Blasphemy. God does everything perfectly. He does it on time and perfectly. He gives that which is perfect and good for his people. Jesus said, if your son asks 
fish from you. Which of you will give him a snake? If he asks bread from you, will you give him a stone? If he asks you for an egg, are you going to find a scorpion and say, here, eat this? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, Heavenly Father? Now, is it just for that time that Jesus said that? Did he ever make a provision there and bring a clause in? This only applies now after I came and, uh, you know, we have a new program going. Back then at Sinai and uh, giving of the law and the whole uh, existence of Israel, a lot of things were wrong, I'm sorry to say. I'm here to correct it. What was wrong was with the people, not with God. That's why we need to follow the scriptures very carefully. For if that first covenant had been faultless, we explained what faultless means in the context of scriptures, then no place would have been sought for a second because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. He overthrew them. This is the covenant. In his mercy, he's brought in the better covenant. He's brought in that which is necessary now in the divine program. I will make with the house of Israel, oh, the heart of God. Can you see the heartbeat of God? Can you feel it? He's such a loving father. Oh, Ephraim, how shall I give you up? My son, he says, after the heinous, wicked sin that Israel did. God judges, he punishes, but his heart is broken. He's not weak. He's almighty. He does not need any one of us. Never. But because love gives... Love seeks the welfare of another, even the one who despises it. That's the power of love. In the hopes that love will change that individual to become blessed by love and a conduit of that same love. He said, Ephraim, how shall I give you up? Oh, Israel, wickedness abounds in you. No matter how many times I bring you out of that vicious cycle that you insist on going back to. And I keep warning you, there will come a cutoff day where you will not be able to be saved. I'm warning you. After that, even after the old generation is wiped out, God's heart is, I don't want anybody else to go that route. And my program is unfolding on time. Hallelujah. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son to be made a seed in a woman. To become sin for us, He who knew no sin. To reconcile us back to God. That's the heart of the Lord. He said, I, had a new, I have a new covenant. I will make with the house of Israel and through Israel to all of us Gentiles. Everyone on the call who's not a Jew, we benefit because we've been grafted into the vine. Oh, hallelujah. Just the knowledge of some of these things should make us overjoyed. And the more we get of God, His Word, the more we understand. The Bible says, the entrance of your words give light. Darkness flees. We have hope when the world is full of darkness. Through the word of promise from God, through the illumination of the Scriptures, knowing what I have in Christ, I'm so rich. I'm the richest person on the planet because I have my Lord Jesus Christ. I see how He is bringing my life together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And it's not over yet. Glory be to God. He's got much more. And ultimately, I will be one with Him just like He prayed to the Father. To live with Him forever. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. How? By the Holy Spirit, written not with ink, on the epistles of our hearts, the tablets of our hearts.
God writing the laws. Oh God, thank you Lord. That which we can never do, God takes the initiative, as always, to perfect us. And they'll all know me. How? He came in and he took away our sins. Verse 12, if he didn't show mercy, no hope whatsoever. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We should serve him, how? In the newness of life. We're not under the law of sin and death. You see, there's a description of two laws, two laws as we close. One is the law given through Moses from God, the Mosaic law. The other is the law of sin and death that works through our flesh. The law that was good and holy that God gave revealed very clearly that law, as we saw in Romans 7, of sin and death is operating in my what? Fallen state. It revealed the exceeding sinfulness of my life. And I look and I see, so how much do I need to keep and how do I save myself? Is there no end to me trying to keep the law? A person struggling with our faith. But a person who knows the purpose of the law, and for us, we have carried over the eternal moral law of God. It was actually there before the law given at Sinai. You see, the civil and ceremonial laws were given in a time period in history. First time ever given. But the moral law is eternal because it has to do with the attributes and character of God himself. Thou shalt not lie. How is it eternal? Because God is the truth. Thou shalt not commit adultery. How is it eternal in predating the law at Sinai? Because God is holy. That goes on forever. That distinction needs to be made when we read Romans 7. The devil confuses people. They confuse the law of sin and death working in our members, which should be crucified and never rise again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. They confuse that law, that principle of sin and death with the law of God, which we just saw in Romans, is good and holy. Hallelujah. May the Lord help us as we continue to read the scriptures and compare scriptures with scriptures that the precious singular stream of heaven's light will dispel every dark insinuation from Satan, every doubt, every fear, because we have the perfect high priest. We, of all people on the planet, are the only ones who can say, I have no fear. I have no fear of my past sins haunting me because he paid for it on the cross. No fear of any present predicament because God says I'm an overcomer to faith in Him. No fear of the future, whether I can continue with Him or not, because God says, My grace is sufficient for you, and He who began a good work in me shall complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. A fruitful life is what we have today, and we can shout hallelujah, because God has given us all that we need to never struggle with sin, to be victorious, shout His praises, because He's provided every good thing at just the right time, leading us to perfection unto the perfect day. Shall we pray? Glory be to you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Oh, Lord, I thank you. You are perfect and good, Lord. Abba, Father. Beautiful is the Lord. Hallelujah. Glorious, Lord. Lord, your scriptures say, beautiful, beautiful for situations is Mount Zion. Lord, but you're the creator of Mount Zion. How much more beautiful you are, Lord. The most beautiful sunset that we can see and take pictures of in videos. The most beautiful colors that we can appreciate. Every aesthetic quality is a reflection, Lord, of your perfection, your beauty. 
One thing have I desired and that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord, His perfections. And to inquire or meditate in His temple. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Oh, Father, perfect everything today. It concerns your children, Lord. I thank you, Father, for perfecting the health of your people. My God, you're the perfect healer. By your stripes we're healed, oh, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I praise and thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.